Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Welcome, listeners, to a new decade of the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm sitting, as usual, with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. He is going to introduce the subject and the guest of today's episode. Andrew, how are you? Hello, Nate. It's good to be here, and Happy New Year. Our guest today is Dr. Art Conklin, the director of the Master of Cybersecurity program at the University of Houston. He's also the director for the university's Center for Information Security Research and Education. Um, The master's program, by the way, has specializations in forensics, in cyber risk, and in cybersecurity for OT environments, or as I would call it, industrial security. Art's topic today is the role of education and training in cybersecurity programs. Let's listen in. Art, your topic is education and training in industrial security. What should we expect from these programs in the industrial security world? The objective is to improve the people element. But when we say improve the people element of your system, with regard to what? You have policies, you have procedures, you have objectives, you have all these things that have dictated your technology buys, your how you run your system. Well, your people fit into that same thing. And so the role and what you should expect is that your training, your education programs, you're bringing in the right workforce, new people, things like that, align with these other objectives. If, for instance, if you're adding new technology into your cybersecurity stack, you may need to send some people off to get very specific training to make the best use of that technology. The technology alone probably will not solve your problem. So this is a coordinated effort with your other objectives just to handle the people side. So if that's what we should expect from training and education programs, um, are there are there problems out there? Is, is this not what, what we're getting? We, when I say we, I'm going to characterize the industry as a whole. Each individual firm, each individual instance will have varying degrees of success or failure in this regard. So it's not a universal indictment, but it does hold true that if you look at job requests for new employees, they expect people to come ready to work like they've been there for 20 years. If you look at buying new technology and bringing it into a plant when budgets get a little tight it's the first thing that's always cut is the training aspect so you cut the people out of your ability to do something and although not everybody does this every time everywhere these stories persist and investing in the people is one of the things that separates the high performing firms from the firms that are always struggling to get it quite right Now, what Art's saying there certainly makes a lot of sense to me. I do, however, have some empathy, at least, for organizations who sort of maybe don't invest in training right away, just because, you know, I can think, if I were running my own organization, these fancy new tech solutions and, and new machines, that is kind of a sexier buy than simply investing in educating new employees, even though educating new employees might be a better idea. 
Yeah, um, I, I'm not sure I agree with you. Um, you know, I I take your point that that uh, you know it it can be uh, enticing to to invest in in new technology, but you, you got to look at the budgets. Um, if you're going to buy a bunch of new stuff and you know deploy it and make it all work, that's uh, that's a fairly expensive undertaking. Um, training budgets tend to be fairly modest, and that's really all they need to be, and so. You know, saying I'm gonna, I'm not gonna spend twenty thousand dollars on training for my people this year because I'm gonna spend a million dollars on technology kind of doesn't make sense to me. Now, you know, every organization is different. the The equation is different, but what I've seen is that often it's that kind of difference. You really can afford to spend twenty or twenty five thousand dollars on training. Um, you know what? What struck me was the the uh, you know just mentioned in passing art mentioned in passing the the thing that a lot of people want to hire people with 20 years experience i just i know that you know this is this is tempting to do when you write a job spec but you got to be careful that you're not you're not just being completely silly so you know i remember back in the day this was uh you know early 90s the anecdote was um yeah a couple of years ago we saw job ads for uh unix system admins they wanted these system admins to have 20 years experience with unix well unix was invented in 1968 and so a couple of years earlier would have been 1988 1989 you want someone with 20 years experience there's only two people on the planet that have that experience that's the two guys who wrote unix so you, you know you have to be careful what you ask for it it, it sometimes is just is just silly i will add andrew that as the representative millennial on this podcast, this is not a problem specific to industrial security. <laughs> there you go. So yeah, I guess uh, don't be silly. Uh, let's let's go back to uh, to see what Art's up to. We still have that today. L- let me let me throw a good example of this, Andrew, and that is there's a lot of new technology coming in response to new threats in the cybersecurity space. And so we have a new threat that suddenly we learn that, oh wait, connecting everything to the internet has risk. And so we throw in firewalls, very specific types of firewalls or other network segmentation methodologies without training the engineers, without working to make these things optimal. And then suddenly what happens is over time, the use of these critical technologies is not applied correctly and they become totally ineffectual. And so was it a technology fail or was it an employment fail through the fact that we didn't have proper trained people to properly set up and maintain? These things happen all the time. And so paying attention to bringing in the right levels of education at the right place to the right people is just as important as bringing in the right new gadget or the right new policy or procedure. So I very much take um, Art's point here with you know his example on on firewalls, and he kind of skimmed over it. Let me let me dive into. Uh, I don't know if this is his example. It's my example on firewalls, and, and it's a very common problem with firewalls. You you train people how to configure the firewalls, but you don't give them the education as to what risk is and how firewalls play in the risk equation. So you've trained people to use the firewalls, and you know to a man with a hammer all the world is a nail. To a man with a firewall, all problems are solved with, bang, another TCP port. 
You need antivirus to come in, bang, open a port. You need remote access, bang, bang, that's two ports, one for the VPN and one for remote desktop. And over time, you've solved all these problems by opening a lot of TCP ports in the firewall. Well, the firewall is supposed to block stuff. It's supposed to block bad stuff. If you've opened ports letting basically everything through, over a period of time, your firewall turns into a router. This is, this is a classic problem when you, you know how to work the firewall, but you don't really understand security. So, you know, I, I take his point that, that you need both. So if training is done, is done properly, um, what should companies expect? They should define in advance of their quote-unquote training what it is their objective is for that training. And so just sending somebody off to a school to get trained in some new technology and then not employing that person to engage in that technology, train others in that technology, to use their training, that's a wasted training element. And so when we look at training or education, it's part of a bigger picture and the objectives that drive this have to be defined and articulated in advance so that when you buy a new piece of technology, a unidirectional gateway, it's new technology to your firm. You haven't used these yet. You've decided this is gonna solve your problem. If you don't train any of your people how to use it, how to install it, how to manage it, well, as soon as somebody builds a network path around it, it's no longer part of your real solution and is that a technology failure? No, that's a training implementation failure that you didn't set up in advance to make certain the right people had the right skills. And so when you ask what should a company expect, they should define in before training or education, these are the, th the attributes, the outcomes of the training I expect my people to achieve. And here's who needs to achieve it and then put that as your training or education plan. What Art's saying there makes a lot of sense to me, but on the other hand, it's hard for me to imagine that there's any organization out there that's really as inept as, as what he's describing, an organization that would train its employees but not really have any long-term goals or, or direction for that training. Well, I think it's more complicated than that. And, you know, in hindsight, I wish I'd, I'd, I'd asked Art for sort of more insight on, on this topic. But um, let me give you an example. Um, you know, with a previous employer, um, you know, I was part of a team that installed firewalls at industrial sites. And I remember, you know, we went in, we installed a firewall at a, a site um, connecting the, the IT and the operations networks and uh, configured it and trained the people at the site, how to operate, how to configure, how to enhance, how to maintain the firewall. We came back a year later because they'd engaged us to do a, uh, a security assessment. We did the security assessment and discovered a cable connecting the IT network, the IT switch to the OT switch. So we wrote it up and we asked them on, on the end, presenting our results, you know, we found this cable. This is a serious problem. You've, you've bypassed the firewall. Um, you've got a path for attacks to go straight into the, the OT network, you know, without even touching the firewall. It's none of our business, but we're wondering what happened here. And the answer was, oh yeah, when, uh, when you guys left, we were cleaning things up. We were 
updating our as-built documentation. This is sound engineering practice. And we discovered that the firewall constituted a new single point of failure for communications between the IT and the operations network. And so we put a redundant path in, so we'd always have two paths, and it completely bypassed the security. So we had left the site thinking that we had trained their personnel in all aspects of the use of the firewall, but we had not done the education, the basic education on what was security and how did the firewall contribute to security. Or they'd have known that it was a bad idea to connect these switches together. You know, they, you know, they thought they were doing a good thing. So setting up training goals and objectives, um, you know, understanding education versus training, setting up both kinds of goals and objectives is something that is, is uh, you know, is trickier than it seems. But Art's going to go on and, you know, talk about other, other tricky topics. So let's tune back in. And, and what should students or, you know, graduates of, of post-secondary uh, institutions, uh, programs, expect out of their training and after their training, you know, well, I think the most important thing that we can try to put into a student's head while they're in college, university, getting an undergraduate degree, a graduate degree, a certificate, any one of these programs is an understanding that their learning does not stop on the day that they graduate. That you're starting them down the path, you're giving them the foundational elements, you're giving them the core pieces. But when they walk into a physical firm plant, each company has their own way of doing things. And some people say, well, that's not the right way because I do it a different way. Well, the right way is the company's way. They've tested it. They've determined that's how they do it. So new employees coming, no matter how well-trained, have to be willing to open their minds and learn and see how can they take their education they've received and meld it into the current company. And this goes the other direction too. Current companies, when they bring in a new employee, should look at that employee and say, how can we bring what they've learned? We're hiring them for their brains, for the stuff that they have understand and can bring to our solutions and our problems. How can we meld that into the rest of what we do? And so it's a mixing pot approach in which both sides, the company needs to realize that the new employees bring new ideas and possibly better solutions. At the same time, the new employee has to understand that the status quo is status quo for a good reason. And so when there is a need for something new, there's a way and a means by which they can bring up suggestions and possibly implement things. And so training before employment never 100% right. Training or education during employment, never 100% right. It's the combination of those two together in an open environment that makes the difference. Art is talking here about employees. He's talking about the training that you provide to employees to develop your employees, employees who hopefully are going to be with you for, you know, another 10 or 20 years. Um, he has not talked about contractors, but let me say a few words about contractors. Um, I frequently, in my own organization, I see people put out, uh, managers put out job requisitions for employees, but they use, you know, they use the uh, uh, 
a job description that's appropriate for a contractor. And what's the difference? A contractor is someone you hire for a short term, a month or three months, to do something very specific. So you bring someone in for a three-month gig, are you going to go send them on two weeks training? No, that's, that's not how you deal with contractors. When you hire a contractor, they have to know everything they need to know to do the job for three months and then get out. And so you, you, you hire a contractor who knows everything they need to know. When you hire an employee, you don't put out a job spec that says you have to know everything. What you're looking for is the ability to learn, a demonstrated ability to learn. And, you know, having learned already a bunch of the concepts, the ideas that you need in order to pick up the specific skills you're going to need in this job over the next year and over the next five years. And so, uh, you know, I think it's important to, to, um, to make the point that, that, you know, his point is that students should not expect to show up and know everything they need to know to do the work. Employees, sorry, employers, businesses should not expect students to show up already knowing everything the business needs them to know. This is the difference between an employee and a contractor. If you're hiring an employee, there is a clear expectation that you're going to train them on the areas that you need them to know. And those areas are going to change over the course of their career. So yeah, training is something that you do continuously um, for employees. This is, in a sense, the nature, the, the difference between an employee and a contractor. So Andrew, in your personal opinion, would you prefer to hire somebody who comes in day one knowing everything they need to know and having had experience of, you know, 10, 20 years? Or would you prefer an employee who's sort of a, a blank slate, but quick to learn things and maybe you can shape them as you'd like to? Well, bluntly, I would prefer the blank slate. And I've had this argument with, you know, people I work with. And the reason is that if you bring in someone who has done nothing but X for the last 20 years, so they know X from one end to the other, and you need them to do X today and Y tomorrow and Z the next day, well, they're going to be really great at X, but they have not demonstrated an ability to learn and adapt over time. When it comes time to do Y as well, now you might be in trouble. You've hired the wrong person. You know, to a man with a firewall, all the world is an open TCP port. If you need people to do other things than firewalls and they have not, you know, you've not hired the, the, a person who can learn, who's demonstrated, uh, uh, you know, the ability to do continuous learning and, and learning outside of one specialization, you've hired the wrong person. They're going to leave. It's not going to work. So, you know, I, I, I very much believe that there, there's a difference. And, uh, you know, if you can bring someone in who's got a demonstrated ability to learn and happens to know all the stuff you need to know today, that's great, but you're still going to have to keep training them. So I, I, I very much take his point here, uh, Arts. Can we get a little more specific for a while? Um, if we're talking about training in industrial security, um, you know, how much of this, I mean, there's, there's a wide spectrum of stuff people have to know, you know, when and, and, and who do you teach theory to? You know, how much, how much of this training is hands-on practice? What, what does this training look like? Education and training is a continuum. I would argue that education is more the discussion of the theory, the underlying principles. Training is the underlying, or education is the underlying principles, the theory, how things really work and why. And so from a cybersecurity perspective, 
there's some aspects to it that we know that data is transmitted in a certain way across networks. Networks do certain things. Here's how they work. And so the understanding of those aspects helps a specific individual working in the cybersecurity role understand what they can and cannot do from a technical basis. Can a firewall stop all traffic? No. Can an air gap stop all traffic? No. And I mean, I say these things as definitives because we have tons of examples. Stuxnet, which was an attack, went around firewalls, went around air gaps, went around a lot of things to cause damage. Um, insiders, if you have somebody inside the company that practices bad cyber hygiene, they bring the same USB stick from home that they did their kids' homework on, that they've got a virus from home, and they plug it into their engineering workstation at work, and it now infects a segmented part of the network with, oh, just an ordinary virus that, oh, yeah, everybody has. These aspects are things that can be taught. We don't do this for these reasons. So education would be the part that would tell you that why don't we want to bring outside devices in? Why don't we want a vendor laptop suddenly connecting directly to my PLC? Because from a foundational cybersecurity perspective, we understand what can go wrong. From a training and practical aspect, we have to look at, okay, we still have to make certain things happen. How do we do that? What are the methods we use to achieve that? And different companies and different firms have set up different methods of, for instance, ensuring a USB drive is clean before use, of connecting a third-party device into your network for maintenance purposes. And so while the student may know the theory of the different ways, there's a practical training aspect that is also equally important of this is how we actually do it here. We use this jump post this way. And so... At the end of the day, the mix of these two is what makes it work. With today's environment, the cybersecurity environment changes on a regular basis. For instance, there was a patch that came out from Microsoft this week that was so critical, the U.S. government spoke out and said, everyone should patch this right away. We already have. That, it was a huge hole in their crypto library. Well, the question becomes, does that mean every Windows system on the planet needs to be patched? One argument would be yes, because thou said it's broken. But the smarter argument would be no. The only ones that have to be patched are those that actually present a risk. And so understanding what causes the risk, where the risk is, how the risk can be mitigated by other means, these are all factors that have to be played into the equation that require that combination of current education understanding of the real underlying principles and issues with the training of this is how things are instantiated in this company. You know, he only mentioned it just at the end there, but I think it's important to emphasize this distinction that he just made 
between education and training. You know, they're they're very similar ideas. They they tend to overlap, but they're not really the same thing. There's education to understand the systems you're working with, know about your field, understand context, all those things. And then there's training for the specific job you have to do. I just want to clarify that this is an important thing and it's going to inform the rest of your interview with him, I assume. Oh, it does very much so. And, um, you know, I, I, I second that, you know, a couple of the examples I gave earlier, the uh, opening a lot of ports over time and eventually turning your firewall in, into a router or running a, a cable in parallel to firewall. This is an example of people who've been trained, but don't have the education to understand the background or don't understand the meaning of the training. They follow the training blindly. So this very much is, is uh, you know, one of, of Art's points. And I think... Uh, you know, I, my next question I'm asking about, about you know, is, is this a pure distinction between what you learn in school and what you learn on the job? And, and you know, he's going to dig into this deeper. So let's listen in. It sounds like you're saying, you know, um, education uh, is focused on a lot of the, the, the theory and the risk, and you need all those concepts. Um, and that, um, uh, you know, on-the-job training uh, for specific technologies that are used in a, a specific workplace um, might be more hands-on. But I know that, that um, you know, a lot of, of training organizations are setting up fairly sophisticated labs. I mean, uh, you know, we, we, we talked to, I, I talked to one organization um, and they, you know, they drag hundreds of pounds of, of, of equipment from, from, from place to place. Um, does does hands-on training with with specific technologies have have no significant role in in the the post-secondary world? Is that is that relegated to the uh, the the on-the-job training? Oh no, you can, there's nothing further from the truth than that. That the role of a university, the role of a student coming through and becoming quote unquote educated in these systems. If they don't have any hands-on experience in actually doing security things, then they're learning about security. And someone who knows about something is like the person that watched somebody ride a bicycle on television and say, I understand how to ride a bike. I've watched it. I know about this. And yet any one of us that's ridden a bicycle knows that there's more than just knowing about how to ride a bicycle. There's some practical skills. There's some techniques. They're things you learn through the actual practice of what you think you're doing. And so the best analogy to this is a method used in medicine in the United States for education, which is see one, do one, teach one. You first have to see what it is and understand the theory behind it. And then you need to attempt doing it until you can actually do something. And once you think you really understand it, then when you go try to teach somebody else, you learn how much you didn't really know yet. And so it's not to you complete those loops of seeing, doing, and teaching that you can really say you understand and you can make a difference in this. So hands-on laboratory exercises don't serve just to reinforce learning concepts. They're what actually create the learning. And ultimately, until you've taught somebody else, you really don't have it cemented. So if you send somebody off to training in your company, when they come back from the training, 
having that person immediately take what they've learned, apply it on the job, that's good. Take what they've learned, apply it on the job, and teach others, that's better. Because when you're forced to actually go explain and show, you're forced to really seriously integrate your thoughts in such a way that you truly have it integrated in part of how you do things and understand the how things fit together and work. And so from that standpoint, hands-on is essential at every level. Well, as somebody who has designed and taught a graduate course a couple of times at Michigan Technological University, you know, I've written a couple of books as well. I very much agree that, you know, it it's tough to line up all your thoughts and understandings and actually teach a room full of people something. Um, you know, when I was teaching at MTU, I, I felt like I was studying and prepping as much as my students were, though, you know, they might disagree with that assessment. Uh, so I like the idea that when you, you send someone to training, the deal is they come back, they use the knowledge, and it's their job to train other people in the organization. This is part of the the uh, the, the the expectation when you get the when you get the benefit of training. You know, this is part of what you bring back to the organization. Okay, so your point is well taken, Andrew. But at the same time, I'm trying to picture is is this a circular thing? So if if Andrew goes off to training, comes back, and trains Nate and and Andrew Jr. Um, who did Nate and Andrew Jr. train in order to sort of have that level of experience and learning? That's a good question, and, and I didn't I didn't ask Art that question, but you know, my guess is that you know it's in an organization. I mean, I've I've always worked in comparatively small organizations. There's two people doing this. There's three people doing that. You know, if, if Fred goes away and comes back and teaches George and Sue, and now the three people who need to do things kind of do things, who are George and Sue going to teach? Well, even if there's only three of them doing it, there tend to be other people in the organization who need to know about it. They don't need to know, they don't need to ride the bicycle, but they need to know about bicycles. And so the rest of the people, the sort of second generation of, of trainees can, you know, teach other parts of the organization they need to know about the new technology the new the new thing um it 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 seems to me that this makes sense though i you know i hate to put words into into art's mouth but based on on my experience in in small organizations you know there's there's always a pool of people who need to know about stuff and that that pool you know as people come and go and change responsibilities there's you know there's the need to uh present the material multiple times. So I, I think there's opportunities. But all of this, you know, while we've been using industrial cybersecurity examples, all of this so far, the, the discussion has really been fairly generic. It, it applies to any, you know, cybersecurity discipline. Um, my next line of questioning, uh, you know, took Art into our sweet spot, which is industrial security. And I understand that, that you have a, uh, an industrial security specialization in your program as well. Can you talk about that for a while? I mean, uh, you know, everything from, from what are you focused on to, to how do you do it? Uh, you know, industrial cybersecurity could mean anything from automation in automobiles to, uh, you know, refineries and pipelines. What, what, what piece of that are, are you focused on and, and how do you address that? We have... Uh I'll call it a track in our master's program for students to take classes that relate to what I refer to as 
operational technology security, OT security. And the initial part of the training is our classroom work is all built around any OT or ICS type system, be it a distributed control system, be it a SCADA system, be it things happen in cars, airplanes, refineries, pipelines, traffic lights, etc. So the initial foundational stuff is very similar across all of those. Then we move into more practical hands-on work, and there, literally because of our training elements, it's either a combination of electric movement, switches, moving power to equipment, things like that, or oil and gas, pumps, fluids, temperatures, pipelines. And it's not that we're specializing in those industries. It's we have actual real equipment, real pumps, real heaters, real level gauges, pressure gauges, real PLCs controlling all these things and systems with students in attaching computers and seeing how do I, you know, defend this? How do I fix it? How do I diagnose problems? And so from that aspect, it's a true hands-on with, you know, Rockwell controllers, with uh, Siemens controllers, Phoenix contract controllers, Schneider, Modicon, GE. And the idea behind putting a student with real controllers, real equipment, is this is what they're going to do when they get to a real job. And so the sooner they learn how to take their theory from the classroom and actually apply it in the real world, the better off they are because one of the things that we emphasize in our education program is everyone's going to make mistakes as they go through and learn this stuff it's much better to get your initial tranche of mistakes out of the way in the classroom where you don't break anything or hurt anybody and so i freely let students go try stuff even when i know that's going to fail that's not going to work i stand back and watch and let them learn because the classroom environment is specifically designed to be safe. And then they figure out, oh, that didn't work. That's not a good approach. They won't make that mistake again in the field in the heat of battle because they've already been there, done that. And so that's the real key of having a solid hands-on element tied to your theory and your practice is to go look at what are the consequences and can I obtain the objectives I'm aiming for? You know, when he describes it like that, arts training course sounds kind of fun. Yeah, it it, it can be. It can be, uh, I don't know, uh, alarming as well. Um, you know, let me start with, with uh, you know, he's mentioned a lot of different vendors. The industrial field, the technology providers are highly fragmented. There's a lot of different stuff that you find in, in a typical site. And his point that, you know, certain kinds of mistakes go across industries and across, uh, uh, you know, technology boundaries. You know, one example is, is a, uh, let's call it a network map. Um, you can, you basically send out uh, connect requests or even ping requests, uh, messages to every IP address in a range that is, is part of the industrial network, asking the question, is there a machine here? Um, which uh, ports on the machine are listening? What kind of systems are running on those ports? Really, it's, it's developing a, an inventory of, of systems. You can only protect a system if you know it's there. 
the problem is that if you do this on a lot of this equipment, a lot of the equipment is, uh, it, what's the right word? Let's call it stressed. A lot of this computer equipment is stressed. It is asking every 10 milliseconds, is the system still safe? It's putting out an output saying, yes, it is. No, it isn't. If the answer is ever no, it isn't. You shut everything down. And it expects everything, everything, you know, kind of is, is, is running as a very uh, tight, finely tuned machine. And if you start slowing things down arbitrarily, the machine looks around and says, ah, something just changed. I don't understand what. Things aren't working the way I expect. And it triggers a shutdown. So you now, you know, you've said, let's use standard tools. Nmap is the standard tool. It's a free tool, network map tool. And it sends out messages trying to connect to lots of different things and sends back a report saying, well, this machine is one of these and it has these things running on it. If you're sending all those messages out, um, bad things can happen. You could be sending those messages, thousands of them, to all of the TCP ports. There's 65,000 TCP ports on a, a programmable logic controller that's not used to dealing with thousands of messages a second, and it falls over, or it, it slows down by, you know, its, it's responses slow down by tens of, or, or even hundreds of milliseconds, and the rest of the system says, what just happened? I'm not talking to the, the, the PLC anymore, at least not promptly enough, and everything shuts down. And you, you, you do what you think is a benign thing, which is, tell me what's running, and you look up at the board, and all of the lights are, you know, a wave of red is moving across the board and you're going, oh crap, that's a shutdown. And you're, you know, in this example, Art is looking over your shoulder going, you just shut the refinery down. And you learn a lesson. And, you know, this is this is useful. So yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, it, it may seem fun, but it's also, you know, it's really distressing when you see all of the lights go red. And I've done this. This is bad. So... Um, we're going to change gears going forward. I'm, I'm going to, you know, we'll stop talking so much about education and start talking about the, the marketplace. So let's, let's listen into art. I'm interested in, in uh, you know, how much demand you, you folks are seeing for your graduates. I mean, we're told that there's a, a shortage of a half million uh, cybersecurity practitioners in the United States. Um, and, you know, I'm guessing a large fraction of them are industrial cybersecurity. Um, you know, how are your graduates doing and, and are you finding, you know, demands from industry for, for even more? How, how does that work for you? Like everything else that we see in the press, you have to take it with a grain of salt. There's one, no question that industry is short of the people they need and the positions they need them in. Now, each company is different. The numbers of openings are different in each individual, but it is going to total up to a lot of numbers. And yes, we do have strong demand for our, for our graduates as they're graduating. Let's, let's put reality back into this equation real quick, which is every company wants to hire somebody with 20 years experience right out of school at a low wage rate. And also, by the way, not only it's 20 years experience, 20 years experience on exactly what they're currently doing. Those people don't exist. The other problem is we tend to inflate expectations of someone coming out of school that they're going to have way more experience than they do. So cybersecurity, because it's so critical, everybody's inflated the requirements on hiring, and that creates a shortage. There are plenty of solid, uh, educated graduates of programs that can come into an environment 
enter the training program like anyone else would entering a refinery, entering a pipeline, entering any other critical infrastructure, and become a solid employee after a certain amount of time. And that is one of the expectation issues that we have that's a problem. So a lot of our gap is self-imposed just because of the way we're suddenly defining what we want to have enter, as opposed to saying a petroleum engineer or a mechanical engineer, or even an HR specialist. Suddenly, when it gets to cybersecurity, we're not thinking like we do in other careers. So if there's this gap between expectations on the part of employers and you know the reality coming out of, of uh, education programs, um, how do we fix that? How, how, do we, how do we get where we need to be? I think there are a couple things that have to happen to start closing the gap um, the education gap to employees, into companies, things like that. One, I mentioned earlier, understanding that education's role and training's role is to prepare the people side of your workforce. It just doesn't automatically happen. And so making that a part of every technology upgrade plan, every other change, that you look at that side as well. Second, if you're going to the education marketplace, the universities, the colleges, to bring people in to staff your enterprise, wouldn't it make sense that you actually have relations with those people and have shopped there before and understand what they have, provide them feedback? So much like if you go to a grocery store and you buy groceries, there are probably several options in your neighborhood, in your local area, but you develop preferences based on what meets your needs. Same thing with education. You can go to an education facility, your local university, universities you're hired from, and meet the faculty, meet the programs, talk to them, tell them we need more X, less Y. They'll explain to you why you're getting what you're getting. But through those constructive meetings, you actually can have a tremendous impact into shaping graduates shaping programs and if you're willing to put some of your people into guest lecture positions adjunct positions things where they help shape the graduates then the outcome can be substantially improved to meeting your specific needs and honestly other companies because the bringing of the reality to the classroom helps make everybody stronger and so this isn't something you just go buy off a shelf and think it works. You're going to have to get involved in the actual supply chain of your people. That sounds very powerful. I mean, if, uh, if you have people from industry coming into uh, uh, an education program, even early on saying, uh, you know, when we hire people, we look for X, Y, and Z, you know, to me, that's tremendous motivation to the students to go and learn X, Y, and Z and, you know, pay special attention to that. Well, it's really powerful from a totally different perspective, too, which I'm not talking just at the university level. What would happen if you went to middle school and explained what people do in your company? What would happen if you went to high schools and explained this is what people do in our company? Then suddenly, they're going to be people at their formative phases realizing, I might want to go do that. I'm pretty certain there's not a reality TV show in place right now 
called cybersecurity and ICS, the kids are watching on television going, I want to go do that when I grow up. And so the setting of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, STEM uh, expectations earlier in education will help prep many, many more people for your firm a decade from now. And you're going to be here a decade from now, so why not plant those seeds? The same token, when you go into the undergraduate programs, you again start shaping students' minds with this idea of, you know, I am a bright, shiny object. You should look at me. When many of these jobs we're talking about are not on any career hunter or anybody's forefront mind. So become the bright, shiny object. Go show people why it's cool doing what you do. And the outcomes are amazing what happens when you engage students at all levels in that fashion. So that sounds really useful. Um, practically speaking, you know, I should, have, I should have asked Art, but practically speaking, it strikes me that there might be a problem. You know, if every business in the community would go into to a high school or a middle school and spend, you know, 10 minutes explaining what every position in the company does, that's, uh, that's a lot of stuff. But, you know, practically speaking, what, what might make sense is have um, a business go in and, you know, spend 10 or 15 minutes talking about all of the things that they do, the, the spectrum of possibilities, including, you know, some cybersecurity stuff. So, you know, a rail company might go in and say, well, you know, these are the people who uh, fix the tracks with a photo or a video of, you know, sparks flying with arc welding. And these are the people who, you know, write the, the code and, and use the tools to uh, uh, automate, uh, you know, scanning tickets and uh, another couple of shots. Um, you could get into it. You could cover a lot of stuff. You could have, you know, a one or uh, one minute or 90 second segment on cybersecurity. I think that, that that's actually doable. And, uh, you know, really the, the cybersecurity team in the organization would contribute to their piece of, of something like that. If you've got someone who's skilled at communicating with young people, they'd be the one to go out and do the 15 minutes at six different high schools. I think it's doable. Um, and, it you know, it, it sounds worth doing. I've heard other people talk about this. Maybe it's just me, but uh, my takeaway from his answer, I like his idea of an industrial security reality TV show. I think we should take Art Conklin, Joe Weiss, Patrick Miller, Gabby Spony, and they all have to live in one house. Wow. <laughs> That's something. Yeah. Okay, well, with, with that image in my head, we're, we're going to cut back to Art, and I'm asking him for, for his last word. So this has been really useful. Um, we'd like to leave our guests with the last word. Is there a, a parting thought that you have for our listeners? My parting thought is really goes back to a theme I think I've hit several times, which is the higher education pipeline, although higher education, I go all the way to middle school forward, it's your supply chain for people. And we all know how important supply chains are in everything we do. And we all talk about how important the people are. But I think a lot of times that that just ends up being talk and not ironed into specific concrete plans that are built into our operations, into our strategic plans. And when you really look at it, getting the most out of your workforce is something you can do only by prepping your workforce, which means smart hiring, picking good education programs to get people from, and then properly 
adding to everyone's training and education at the right moments and rewarding that in such a way that it works for the firm. And so my closing thought is it's all about the people. And getting the most from your people is not a matter of beating them. It's a matter of equipping them so they can provide the most because people want to do a great job. They just don't necessarily have the information they need when they need it. And that's what training and education is all about, getting that into them. Andrew, what's your takeaway here? Well, I found this to be a very useful session. I especially like the distinction that Art makes between training and education. I mean, I have a training budget for my people, but I've never really thought about how to work training uh, and, you know, education, uh, you know, the, the, the difference between them, how to work that strategically into my plans to, to expand my department. So this is something I'm going to be, I'm going to be pondering and sleeping on and, and seeing how I can use, uh, you know, next week and next month. All right, that'll do it. Thank you to Art Conklin for speaking with you, Andrew. And thank you, Andrew, as always, for speaking with me. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Nate. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.